Hello and welcome to Disruptive Voices, a podcast series exploring the triumphs, frustrations and learnings of women working in fintech. I'm Kimberly Long, Asia Editor of The Banker, and in this first episode, Financial Tech and the Diversity Gap, we will discuss women in the fintech space. In which areas of fintech are women best represented? Are they getting the support they need? Where do they turn to to find their tribe? And do we need to do more to call out the imbalance still in place? And what can we do to narrow the gap? To begin this discussion, I'm speaking with Louise Brett, Vice Chairman at Deloitte UK and UK and Europe FinTech and Financial Services Innovation Lead Partner. Louise has been outspoken about and written on the need for greater diversity within FinTech. So before we start to give some background, this is an idea for a podcast that I've been thinking about for a while now, especially as I head up the 50-50 project at the Banker to ensure that we are working towards seeing 50% female representation within the magazine. And that goes across uh, who's writing the features, who we're quoting, the photos that we use. So it's something that's really top of mind for me. And when I'm doing this, uh, the one point that I come up against repeatedly is that there are not enough women available to speak to for pieces, which is something that I know is not true. And I really wanted to use this series to highlight just how many women there really are who are working across fintech and banking in general and that there are those voices out there. So that's kind of my introduction to this. So, Louise, I think just to start out with, what are your experiences as a woman in the fintech space? Is it something that you've had certain positives with? Has it been particular negatives? What have you experienced just trying to go about your daily job as a woman in this space? So Kimberly, I'm delighted you've chosen this topic for your podcast series because I think it's a really important one to be illuminated because going about day-to-day in fintech, there are, as you um, posit, plenty of women in fintech. Um, The conference organisers, the industry bodies, um, the journalists do a really good job of trying to get a mixed group and enough women to put their voices out there when there are staged events. However, there are no kind of big moves like the 30% 30 club in financial services that really say beyond the profile fintech women, how does the industry really work? And I think there's a kind of hidden problem because anyone who's been in financial services for any length of time kind of gets normalised to being the smaller group in the room, maybe the only woman in the in the room. And then when you actually do see it, and I am seeing it now more and more, that there are the majority of people in the room dis- discussing a fintech topic might be women. So I think there's definitely people out there, but are they the same women that are seeking to put their selves on the stage to make a difference? Or are we actually getting new women each time? I think is something we need to challenge. Mm, I think that's a really good point because that's something as well. Like there's a A discussion we often have within kind of the editorial and across journalists is that when you ask for, you know, you might specifically say, like I often say when I'm approaching like a particular group or a bank, for example, and say, if you have a woman who can talk about this, please put them forwards. And, you know, sometimes you'll specifically ask for a woman and they'll kind of defer to a man instead. And it's that that issue now of how do we get more women to actually put themselves forward so like you say I think that is a really interesting point like are we getting new voices or is it just the same kind of more vocal women every time yeah and I think it's great to have the female voices there but when we have a male voice you know they can talk about their women colleagues and maybe they we should really encourage more of that name checking the people that are influencing them that are women I think would be as powerful as having the women influencers there too recognizing that it's mutual diversity it's not single um sort of 
uh, sex uh, routes that we're trying to, to move down. Mm-hmm. Great. And to move on to another question now and something maybe a little bit more positive as we look across the series. In which area of fintech are women best represented? Are there any particular um, areas of fintech that seem to attract more women to work in them? So I think this is a really interesting question. Um, when I look around leadership of fintech across the UK, I would say there is a lot of female representation, be it in industry bodies, be it in cluster fintech clusters and fintech hubs. And that sort of shaping our sector um, has been a really strong place for women. When you look underneath and say, well, we're in, at the individual fintechs themselves, who are being more successful having um, women voices a lot of the um, shapers locally be it in payments be it in um id and v some of the um regulatory pushes have been women however again i think if you then looked at all the businesses in that subsector you would say actually that's that we're not overly represented so if we are going to make a change the fact that there are more women in the um sort of macro roles i think is really helpful we now need to elevate and amplify the women running their businesses um it then comes down to i think the thorn in the ointment here which is but how many founders that are women are actually getting the oxygen needed to grow their business and that's where the um, stats are still very woeful Hmm. that was that was kind of my thinking as well is that you know maybe in the more like regulatory positions or things like that you see more women but actually when it comes to the the founder side of things the people who are looking for that funding to make the next step kind of the the innovators for want of a better word that's still very male dominated and it's really that question about how you know is it that is it the chicken and the egg thing you know is it women actually aren't setting up these companies or is it the women who do set up these companies just aren't getting the support they need to actually grow so I think um, it's getting the support they need. I think there is a dearth still of capital flowing from um, VC funds, P houses into female founders. I think there is a still a legacy of homophily carrying on of so many of the um, funds are male dominated and looking to people like them. Um, you know, the stats move around, but it's between three and 7% of female founded um, led teams that actually get access to capital against the male um, percentages, which is ridiculously small. So if someone is contemplating, a woman is contemplating setting up a business, if they look through on that line of sight to the ease of fundraising, it may turn them off before they've even started, or they may start and then find it so difficult they can't continue. But what's really good news is, people are waking up to this. So uh, a number of funds are having female only funds um, to really kind of work on their own diversity. So I think that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's something that I'm going to look at in much more detail in another episode in in this series. Um, So to move on to another point, this is something that you've, I've, I've read, you've written about and it's a, a topic that comes up a lot now is really this focus on STEM and women in STEM. And it's, you know, a thing that you didn't really hear about even a couple of decades ago, but now there's so much focus on it, trying to encourage more girls, more women to move into this space to continue studying sciences and studying maths at school, going into university to study them. But is this really what we need? And is there more need to get to 
further education to get more women into fintech or do you think that we need a different approach it's not just as easy as as suggesting that more girls do a level maths for example I totally think we need a different approach because just to say do more A-level maths as girls, there'll be those inclined to do it anyway. And I'm not sure that's a real sales message to say do more A-level maths. I think because of where fintech is as a sector, it is solving societal problems. It is creating change. It's building the future. I think if you encouraged girls, young ladies into uh, fintech related subjects, by pulling them in, in in that way, rather than you need to do STEM, STEM subjects, we might appeal very differently. I also strongly believe it's STEAM, not STEM. I think the whole arts creative part of FinTech, the empathy with the end users are, you know, that's the data scientists need to work with the creatives. And so let's not narrow our field just to the STEM subjects. Let's make it about being purpose-led, about being creative, share, other opportunities to be able to be involved and mm-hmm. um, I mean something that just anecdotally as a woman in her mid-30s something I've found is I've got a couple of friends who have had career changes where they've gone from um, doing very different roles into completely retraining to do um, like to, to do tech to do website design to do coding for example and do you think there's that there's that missing segment as well, perhaps, that it's not just about focusing on teenagers in the hope that maybe in 10, 15 years' time they'll have these jobs? Actually, there's a lot of women out there who are halfway through their careers who realistically aren't going to retire for another 30, 35 years at this rate, that actually we can maybe make this kind of career path more attractive to them to encourage them to maybe think about moving into these type of careers. Yeah, no, I think... Um... We know we're not going to get enough talent into this sector doing what we're doing today. So f- tapping into women that maybe have got to a certain place in their lives that they can make that change, that um, maybe they're past having young children or they have tried one career and looking for di- diversity in careers or indeed have reflected on what their contribution is um, through the pandemic and wanting to do something more purpose-led. I think all taps into transition careers and finding those roots. And there's a lot being done in how do we reskill, but maybe let's focus on the women in that uh, reskilling conversation, women in fintech. And I don't see yet anything really reaching out to them. This is an exciting opportunity and you don't need to feel that you haven't got the um, background to be able to do this. We can train you to be able to contribute in in this sector. And I know there are a few fintechs that, go out and target women to do just that. Um, it helps with their diversity as a business, but we should be absolutely doing this at scale more than we are. Welcome to the second chapter of episode one, Financial Tech and the Diversity Gap, where I'm joined by Michelle Tran, founder of NYC Fintech Women and head of enterprise sales at Retirement Fintech Festival. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here today. So to give an overview to everyone before we start, NYC Fintech Women boasts um, 10,000 members and has active and engaging social media accounts across LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. So it's got to reach far beyond NYC, I'm sure. So Michelle, to start off with, I thought it'd be interesting to get some thoughts from you on what your experiences are as a woman in the fintech space and about some of the, the trials or tribulations that you may have encountered. 
Yeah, NYC FinTech Women, we, our organization, our mission is really to empower, connect, and promote women in FinTech. And I started this back in 2017, um, very, for the very reason of, you know, my experience being in FinTech wasn't fantastic in that I was typically the only female. Um, and I, I really struggled to find the community that can help us kind of rise together. Um, and so really when we thought about, you know, what do we need to put in place in order to help women achieve career goals, help women achieve personal goals, we really need each other, right? We need our network, we need our community. Um, and so ensuring that we have that um, in form of NYC FinTech women, and you're absolutely right, while we are it does say NYC FinTech Women, we're not New York only. Um, you know, we're about probably 70% based in New York and then 30% everywhere else. We just started a, a chapter in San Francisco and that's going really, really well. Um, and we've also gotten, you know, a lot of requests for places like London and, and Hong Kong for us to have a presence. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Why did you choose to start in New York? Is that just where you're based or did you feel that was a particular hub for, for women in FinTech? So both. I was based in New York. I recently moved to the West Coast, but I was I spent about eight years in New York. I worked um, at BlackRock, Apex in New York, um, and that's really where one we we do believe the home of fintech is in New York, right? You have a lot of these huge financial institutions like the BlackRocks, the Blackstones, Goldman Sachs. That's where they're based at, and that's where you see a lot of um, a lot of the talent, a lot of the people, and also. New York itself, you know, is is Silicon Alley. You have um, the uh, you have the Flatiron area where you know all over Flatiron are fintech startups um, of all different kind of variations. And so, really, New York is the hub of fintech itself. It is also you know the hub of capital markets, and that's where a lot of fintechs are based. So we that's where we started with New York. Um, I, because I moved out to the West Coast, there was a natural desire for me to build out that same community in New York. But that 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 demand also just came naturally a couple of years before I even moved. That you know, obviously with Silicon Valley being here, there's just so much fintech happening here, and and women here really struggling to find that right community. Um, and so we're super excited to to have a presence here, and even you know we're launching in Chicago in a couple of weeks, which is mm -hmm. exciting. That sounds really exciting. You've certainly got a lot of plans for expansion. And there's obviously a need then for women to have these kind of groups to be able to network with, to meet with. I mean, I know I'm in various groups as well for journalism. So it's it's I can see where the, the appeal and the need comes from. And I think that leads into my next question around, you know, we all need that kind of mental support in work and the ability to bounce ideas off other people and sometimes you know you need to speak to people who have a similar kind of mindset or background to you to see if an idea works so where do you think women working in fintech can tend to to find their tribe so they they definitely need to turn to groups like ours nyc fintech women and one of the things that we did um from the very very beginning when we started this and we started with you know happy hours let's just you know meet at a bar let's just get together as people um, and it really progressed since then. But one of the things that we put into place at the very beginning was that you have to meet five people. And so we put this particular number out there because if you if you over-index at five, we know that people at least will hit three. And it also gives people a reason to meet others, right? And the whole reason why they're meeting others is that we we want women to build their own personal board. And so what is a personal board? A personal board is a group of people 
who are there for you to be a sounding board for whatever you need. And it's typically a very diverse group and you're gonna use them at different times. Um, you know, there's someone that you'll need to, to talk about for business deals. You'll need, there's someone that you need to talk to about career goals and negotiating your salary. There's someone that you you need to bounce off ideas if you're having, you know, issues at work with others. Um, and so really what's important for us is how do you build that community? How do you build your own personal board? And that's really coming to these events and meeting people and not just meeting them once, but you really need to cultivate and, and foster that relationship. And so we always tell people come and come again. You know, you should be there all the time because you're going to start seeing the same people. You're going to meet them again. And then you're going to build these really deep, amazing relationships with them. And they're, they're going to be your personal board. And I personally, you know, through NYC FinTech Women have built such an awesome personal board of these stellar women and men who've helped me in so many different ways and and not only my career but also just really helping me think through okay what else can we do for women in fintech so it's it's you know going and putting yourself out there is you know number one step but continuing to foster and cultivate those relationships and being very intentional about it too is extremely important and it's such a good it's such an interesting idea and a good idea as well to have that kind of almost quota that you have to hit each meeting i think it's very easy to get um sucked into just staying with your own group or if you go with friends you know you stay with those people but if you're actually you have to meet so many people then you're really going to expand your yep. um your, you know your network base yeah and I and I tell them too I'm like hey blame it on me Michelle meet <laughs> five people and so you can walk up to that stranger who you probably never would walk up to and say that woman over there told me I have to meet five people and she's <laughs> so it takes that responsibility off and you know I even I, I'm sure you get it too but when we're at events sometimes you you get tired or you're just you know you want to hang back a little bit but that's really a, a good reason and a good scapegoat for people to, to walk up to people they don't know and you'd be surprised at the amazing relationships they have built yeah, and I think absolutely as well is that that networking thing is that like soft skill development of just being able to walk up to people and it's something that it's it's funny like if I've got my like journalism hat on and I have to go and speak to somebody like I need to speak to that person because they need to tell me about this story or whatever I can do that but if I have to go to like a networking event or something and I have to just be me it's a completely different thing and it's much more difficult to approach somebody and just be able to start that conversation with them you know you see them in a group of people and you think oh do these people already know each other you get that that kind of fear almost so it's 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 good to have that extra push to kind of overcome that own boundary that you've often put in yourself totally yeah it's 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 intimidating you know mm. it's a social situation at the end of the day um and it can be very intimidating so the the more excuses that you have to to do it i think is it's all the better mm, definitely and just to move on to another point now, like we've touched on kind of creating that board, your no, your network, the people around you, but then also as well, it can be so important to have someone who can provide you with advice, who, can, who you can look up to in terms of mentor, for example. And, you know, in the field of fintech, which is still pretty, you know, a recent development, it's not going to be people who've had decades and decades of experience in some cases. So... How do you, how important do you think it is to have those role models to look up to throughout your career? And how important do you think mentoring is in that way? Do you see within your group, there's actually examples of women who have then been able to help younger women, for example, or women changing careers? 
A hundred percent. It is, it is very, very important to have good mentors. And I would even say um, to add in the, the role of a sponsor. So the sponsor, we, I, I say is even more important than a mentor. So as a mentor, you know, really someone who can help guide you, give you advice, a sponsor, someone who then will raise their hand and put you in that right direction and put you in that right place. So either they're recommending you for a role, they're putting you in front of the right person, they're making, you know, they're really putting their foot forward and making sure that they have the right introductions for you. Um, a sponsor is so important to have as well as a mentor. Um, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, fintech, the terminology fintech itself isn't, you know, decades old, but financial services has been around for a number of years. And so is technology. Um, and so you have these amazing women who have grown up in the world of finance and technology combined, who really have, you know, have taken it as part of their directive to to help women through a career in fintech and we we get a lot of people who what i call fintech curious so either they're at a bank or they're at a financial services firm and they're like well i really want to go to a fintech um what does that mean i tend to respond to say hey you're actually out of fintech already like if you're at goldman you're out of fintech you're doing some really awesome things um you know, is there someone within that organization that you can speak to that can help you guide you through that conversation? So it's, it is really important to have, you know, someone who is a bit, you know, I think more established or experienced in that way, but it's also incumbent on us who do have that experience to put ourselves out there and ensure that, you know, the women who are, who are coming up in mid-career, early career, um, know that we're accessible and that we really want to help them. And I think that's one of the things too, is that, the having a community of women in fintech in general, you see women do that naturally, where they're just like, they're just raising their hand and say, yes, how, what can I do to help you? Hey, I have these 10 roles at my company, or let me introduce you to these five people. I think you'd be a great fit there. And I love hearing those stories from our group because that's really what it's all about. It's about how can we really help each other very actively. Mm -hmm. Um, so just kind of have a final point, you know, we we talked a little bit before we started the call and we were talking around kind of the biggest issues that are still in place for women in fintech or women trying to found a fintech. And, you know, what do you see as still being the biggest issues that need to be overcome? So to me, the biggest issue is funding. Um, funding for, for female founders, to be very specific. Um, you know, 2021 was a record year for VC funding, institutional funding, where we saw $330 billion in 2021. Uh, less than 2% of that went to female founders. Um, so obviously females are not 2% of the population. So that's really a, a dismal number. And another pretty sad fact is that that number was actually a decline from the year previously. So before I think it was like 2.6 or something. Um, and so the number really decreased to, to 2%. And this is, you know, for companies that have a single female founder, companies that have a female and a male founder actually saw an increase in funding, which is great. It increased, I think, 15%, but those are still pretty low numbers. And so for me, the biggest issue and the biggest challenge we have is actually getting money in the hands of females. So who really want to start companies who have great ideas um, and we need to do more and more of that. And there's, there's a number of VCs out there that are super focused on that. You know, you have Cowboy Ventures, you have the Venture Collective, and that's fantastic. But we also then also need to change the conversation at the major, the major, um, the major VCs too, 
like you know the A16Zs and the Sequoias, and really change and, and ensure that they're they're being very intentional about funding females. And with these big funding houses that maybe aren't providing women with as much funding as they are to their male counterparts, so what do you think the main reason is that's holding them back? I, I think a lot of it is one. Um, what I've what I've heard is they, they say is there's a pipeline issue, right? Like we don't know who they are. We haven't seen a lot of female founders, and that's true, right? Like I think you know it, it all stems back to what are the resources women have to become female founders? How can they actually be female founders? It's a risky proposition to to leave a job and and to try something new. So how do we support women to be founders? Number one. Um, you know, what can we put in place to say, hey, if you're interested in being a founder, here are all the resources that we can give you. Here's the community. Here are the people that can help you through that. Here are some attorneys to help you think through the legal parts of it. Here are, um, you know, previous female founders to help you think through the process and the journey. And then here's the money, right? So a lot of it is, I think, de-risking the journey of being a female founder. Um, but at the same time, we also, the, the reason why there is risk is because you don't know if you're going to get that money. And so unfortunately, there's a little bit of a loop there. Um, but we definitely, you know, there needs, needs to be more focus on funding female founders. Another way that we've seen also that is, has been a little bit more tactical in terms of changing some of this conversation is that you're seeing a lot of more female angel investors who are, are giving money to female founders, as well as scouts. So, you know, scouts are really important in the 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 funding ecosystem and identifying great companies. And I know a ton of great scouts who are very focused on the female female founders only and bring them into these big houses. Welcome to chapter three on this episode, Financial Tech and the Diversity Gap. In this third chapter, we're speaking with Suzanne Chisti, CEO of FinTech Circle and co-editor of the FinTech book series. Thanks for joining us, Suzanne. Thanks so much, Kimberly, for having me. So you've had a really long career working within FinTech, working at international banks and with FinTech entrepreneurs and specialists. How have you seen the space progress over that time? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I started out in 2014 uh, launching FinTech Circle. We initially focused just on investing in FinTech startups. It was a FinTech angel investor network where we found the best startups to use uh, and to invest in early stage investment opportunities. Then we decided to add a range of FinTech education materials. So we wrote books, you know, we developed uh, seminars, webinars. And then what we did afterwards is to develop accelerators for banks. So that was the time when banks started to become more innovation-driven because at the beginning in 2014, when you think back, was after the financial crisis where banks focused on regulation initially, always focused on compliance, regulatory issues. And so lots of banks did not look at innovation necessarily as a top priority. But this changed since the last you know, eight years. Now banks very much focus on innovation, on driving change forward using the latest technology Technologies. So what we have seen in a nutshell is that about, you know, eight, ten years ago, everything was still initially focused on the business to consumer side of fintech. Mm -hmm. 
so fintech areas which are simpler to understand, such as remittance payments, mm -hmm. you know, transfer uh, of money in foreign exchange payments, also mobile mobile uh, banks, neo banks, challenger banks. But what we've seen in the last few years is more B two B business to business mm -hmm. applications, where fintech companies develop solutions for banks, and they don't want to compete with banks. They want to work for banks. They want to work with banks as partners or with asset managers or insurance companies. It's called InsureTech. So I think what we have seen is a, 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 a phase where fintech becomes more mature, you know, becomes part of the mainstream finance world. And I think now I can, I think what we see now is that really fintech is the future of finance. Mm -hmm. You know, we will have no financial institution which don't use and doesn't use fintech innovation, fintech solutions in the future. And I think that's a good thing because fintech brings not just technology, but it also brings new business models. It brings new way of thinking, more diverse environments as well. And all this is positive, you know, for financial services. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing a few years ago around really the evolution of fintechs and there was a bit of a tension between the banks versus the fintechs. So, you know, they were kind of seen as rivals almost. Do you think they're working more together now? Is the line being blurred between the two? Yeah, uh, you're totally right. I mean, I remember at the beginning it was about, you know, when uh, Jamie Diamond, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the CEO of JP Morgan, he said, they're eating our lunch. Yeah. You know, fintech companies eating our lunch. And it was about this danger that fintech companies will pick out the areas of banking with the highest margin mm -hmm. and taking this away. And then the banks are left with a commoditized business, low margin business. But I think what, what banks realize is that fintech companies are not the danger. It's a tech giants. Mm -hmm. You know, these are much more dangerous and much more competitors for banks because tech giants, as we've seen with Apple Pay, you know, mm -hmm. they're moving in heavy. Amazon, uh, uh, you know, Google, Facebook, many of them have got their own banking licenses mm -hmm. already. Yeah. So they are much more of a competitor to uh, banks. And fintech companies, I really would see them as a, as an, as a partner for banks, as you, as you rightly said, because fintech companies can help banks and, and anybody else in financial services to accelerate faster, to innovate quicker. And you don't, the good thing is, you know, when I think back to my banking days, normally within banks, you any innovation costs lots of money and it takes lots of time. But very Working with a fintech company, you can speed up route to market. You know, you can speed up the the uh, innovation success rates as well because you just buy in what works. Mm -hmm. You don't have to try lots of things out and maturity doesn't work, but you just buy, you license in the software which has been tested by the fintech company and is working already. Mm -hmm. And so it's 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 a very a big benefit, you know, to established financial players. Great mm -hmm. right. and. You know, so looking kind of to a side of that now as well, we know we're really focusing on kind of the the experiences of women within the fintech space with its podcast. And it's something you've spoken about before is the need for more women to call out the gender bias, which has been experienced within the fintech space. And from your perspective, what types of bias have you experienced and how do you think women can go about raising issues? Because I think there is a concern about not wanting to be that kind of whistleblower and if you do call things out is that going to negatively impact on you is that going to are people not going to want to work with you things like that so there's the, all these concerns that maybe would hold some women back from speaking out so what what do you think is the best way for them to 
come forward and highlight their concerns. Yes. I mean, I think, first of all, it's totally right that fintech still has got a long way to go, you know, mm-hmm. to be diverse, to be equal. And to some extent, it's true. And and, 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 and because, you know, finance and technology, both areas are very male-dominated mm-hmm. still. And so fintech is a combination of both, has not enough women in leadership positions, does have a pay gender gap, you know, does not promote women probably quickly enough for as quickly as men get promoted. Mm-hmm. So all these issues are there. And uh, and I think for women, uh, I think the key things what I learned in my, my career is um, you have to ask for more. You know, mm. And it starts out literally by taking your first job after university, mm-hmm. that you negotiate your salary, you ask for more, you don't assume that what you're given is the maximum you can get. Yeah. And that's what I remembered, you know, when you, when you did um, after an MBA, for example, you know, often they made studies where they said, you know, men ask for a, a higher offer, while mm-hmm. women often accept the first offer they get. So that's the first step. And then it's, I think, from a company's point of view, I'm on the board, you know, of a FTSE listed company. Company. I'm on the, also on the board of a bank and as a board member, uh, and we talked about this before the podcast today, mm-hmm. data is key. Yeah. You know, as a board member, you can ask for data because data allows you to be more transparent and to dig deep and then to measure success, to measure progress. And so you can start looking at, you know, at the time when people get hired, maybe after university, maybe it's still 50-50, you know, mm-hmm. among genders. But then when you move up, you know, after two years and the first promotion starting to happen, you can measure did the same amount of women get promoted as a man, mm. you know, and do women still get paid the same as men on average? Mm-hmm. And if that's not the case, you can immediately do something about it at an early age before it becomes ingrained mm-hmm. and then gets worse and worse over time. And then if you measure that, you know, over the course of a lifetime career, you can see that there are, of course, areas where often women get penalized when they stay at home having children. You know, what again could the government do to support women? Women, that they when they stay at home that they still get uh, pension increases you know mm-hmm. and uh, that's what in Austria and I'm Austrian mm-hmm. as you know originally and if you go and if you stay at home in Austria you know looking after your children you still get benefits in your pension so you don't mm-hmm. end up with a smaller pension than men mm-hmm. only because you stayed at home for a few years yeah. and, uh, and so all of those things need to be taken uh, together that the government is supportive of women working and not being penalized for having children that the companies support women's payments and progression the same amount the same speed as men and equally that women Ask for more, you know, mm. ask for more and say yes to opportunities. That's really key because uh, and I've got two daughters, mm. you know, and I think it's one of the key things is that women often think they have to be perfect for a new role. Mm. Only then they apply for a yeah. new role, you know, but that's not the case. I mean, I always say if you know 50% of what's on offer, apply and try it, you can learn, you yeah. know, you can yeah. learn the rest. So it's about just giving it a go, you know, being brave, you know, being courageous, mm-hmm. but also the environment has to support you. That's also very Important. Yeah, that's so true. It's the, the the question as well, I think, is really around when, you know, if you are, say, as you know, for example, if you're on a board, if you're very senior and you can see that data and you can monitor that, it's great if there's a woman in a senior position who can do that. But do you think that there are men who are aware of this as well? Are they actively looking to do this? Or do you think maybe 
the men out there who are listening, maybe they need to start putting in a little bit more effort as well. well what's your experience been on this? I, I've seen both extremes. Mm. You know, I've seen men who have got women at home who are housewives, and that's the role model they see for women. Mm. You know, they yeah. expect women to be at home, at work, at home in the kitchen, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, so these old-fashioned men exist still, and often they have got very senior positions, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, in in, in in big companies, but equally, I've seen women as I've seen men who are very very supportive of men. Mm-hmm. You know, an example was one man who came to the school of my daughter mm. talking about his job. And then afterwards, she went up to him and asked him about his job. You know, and he said, yeah, if you want an internship, come and talk to me. Yeah. But then he coached her. He said, you have to be mm. more pushy. Yeah. You know, he literally yeah. told her, you have to be more pushy. You have to remind me because I will forget otherwise. Mm. So he coached her. And again, because he has got a daughter at home as well. You know, so he yeah. wants to support women. So I think men are in the whole, in this whole range. You know, they're super supportive men and they're not at all supportive men. Mm. And uh, and I guess the key thing is for women, if you've got a male boss, to find out who is your boss, you know, what type of boss have you yeah, got? Yeah. And if you find that you have not a supportive boss uh, to do something about it, either you start working for somebody else or, you, you know, you, or maybe they're still helpful, you know, but if they're not, I think then you should think about how can you fight back, you know, what can mm. you do about it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. And so we've already touched on it a little bit anyway, but, you know, I wanted to really find out more about the gender pay gap and you know if women are getting what their what their worth what their value is in the space you know and there's been so much written about and it's well documented that women don't get as much vc funding as men and something that i'm gonna do a whole episode on this later on in this series because i think it is such a huge issue um but do you see even kind of working within a fintech within a company maybe not even as a startup that actually there is that gender pay disparity and then you know how can women ensure that they are getting paid what they're worth yes and i think that's that's the key thing is that women know how much they're worth you mm-hmm. know that's the first priority is to realize how much you're worth as an individual based on your skills you know based on your transferable knowledge based on your personality you know that you know and you know your worth and you don't think you're worth less than that that's the mm-hmm. first important thing because you feel strong in a negotiation and uh and that's uh, key because then when you know what you're worth you know you can have a plan b you can negotiate for more pay or for a bigger promotion but equally you can say because often in companies what i found you know thinking back to my investment banking days mm-hmm. the people who got paid the most or got promoted the quickest were the ones who otherwise threatened that they were leave, leaving <laughs> you know so you need to have an other offer sometimes to negotiate mm-hmm. your own salary up because otherwise you can leave and and again this again again, confirms your market value, you know, to your existing yeah. boss, because they see your market value is much higher than I thought. And therefore, we need to adjust the salary to compensate you for staying, basically. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really key is to, to know your market value and to uh, and, and to, to make sure that you ask for the best pay you can get, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, you work to get paid. You know, it's not about, it's yeah. not about, um, I mean, it's, you also have to be satisfied and happy in your job, but it's important to get paid appropriately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would say in terms of gender pay gap, what helps enormously is that the number one, that the government, our government now, you know, does this analysis, which mm-hmm. is mandatory for companies above 250 employees, mm-hmm. yeah. where you actually need to measure your gender pay gap, you need to publish it, mm-hmm. which is really important because you it becomes more apparent. But ideally, I think what people should do as well is to talk about money, mm-hmm. you know, among yeah. women, you know, yeah. among women, we should talk about how much do we get, you know, how much do we should we get, you know, because then... 
is often this taboo topic. Mm -hmm. you know, nobody yeah. wants to talk about it. But if you do talk about it, you start seeing if you get underpaid or if you get overpaid, you can help your friends getting more, yeah. you know, and you can share those those strategies. And uh, and I think from a company point of view, you know, the government, they issued a very nice leaflet about what works and what doesn't work to decrease the gender pay gap. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, for example, things which do work is transparency, like you said, yeah. you know, to make it transparent, how, what are the criteria to get promoted to the next level? Mm -hmm. Because then it's fair for everybody to know you can, you open up and say, these are the steps you need to take, then mm -hmm. you get your promotion ready. Mm -hmm. Or what are the components to get paid a certain level, you know, mm -hmm. because then you know how to work towards and ticking off all those components. Mm -hmm. And, um, and equally, it's important to tell people that offers often are flexible, so they can be negotiated depending on your previous experience. Mm -hmm. And that's important because if, if women know that and they say this offer is flexible, so it depends on your experience and women know it's not a done deal. You know, mm -hmm. I can ask for more because I've got more experience. Yeah. And so companies should start saying that. That's a negotiable offer. You know, tell us if you think you should earn more. And uh, But if companies don't offer that, then as a woman, you should always assume it's negotiable. Mm -hmm. I think that should be your full default position that you assume it's negotiable. And um, and I would say, and the other thing which the government said, if things which did not work very well, very interestingly, are leadership trainings mm -hmm. or no bias trainings. These mm -hmm. things did not necessarily work so well because often those trainings are good when you get the training, but then you forget about it later yeah. on. You don't implement it, yeah. you know. So those are... Those are the things which which um, which is really interesting, I think, to observe. But coming back to your question about investments mm. and uh, that women don't get enough investment uh, offers, you know, from venture capitalists or private equity funds later on, this is the case very much, unfortunately. And I think it has got many causes. You know, one cause is that we don't have enough female investors mm -hmm. because we did. There was a study done by the British. Uh, Angel Association, which is mm. the association of all angel investors in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I think we are about 15 or 16 percent of female angel investors. You know, more than 80 percent are male yeah. angel investors. So angel investors normally provide the first capital for startups, mm -hmm. which is the, uh, the, you know, after family and friends is yeah. the first round. You know, normally when you start up, you ask your family or friends mm -hmm. for money. Once they gave you the money, they don't have any more. You have yeah. to ask <laughs> outsiders. You know, yeah. these are the angel investors. And if more than 80% of angel investors are men, they often tend to invest into men, yeah. you know, not into women. Mm. So you need to have more female angel investors. But in order to get female angel investors, you need to get women who earn more money, Yeah, you know, yeah. because then, then they have got the money to invest. Exactly. Or you need companies who exit, who should be owned by women, because mm. once you exit, you can then, you know, use the money you earned from your sale of your company to reinvest in other companies. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so... You know, the reason why we don't have enough female investors is because we have not paid women well enough. Yeah. And we have not yeah. had women enough female exits because, mm -hmm. again, they didn't get enough money in the first place. And uh, and so that's one cause. And the other cause, therefore, is, I think, for male investors to invest more in female businesses. So yeah. they should start mm -hmm. looking at statistics. Do you know, yeah. how many female companies did we invest in? How can we improve the ratio? And then often grants, you know, there are many more grants out now mm. for female, you know, entrepreneur grants, which are great. But often the grants are very small. Mm -hmm. You know, they're for 50,000 pounds. Yeah. You know, that's not at all enough. Yeah. You know, you can't even hire a person for that. Yeah. You know? yeah exactly. So it's, you have to get, you have to be more ambitious and give women more, more, more financial support. 
welcome to the fourth chapter in episode one of Disruptive Voices. I'm speaking with Christine Kiefer, co-founder of Ride Capital, venture partner at Angel Invest and founder of Fintech Ladies. Thank you for speaking with me today, Christine. Hi, happy to be here on your show. So it sounds like you've got a very busy schedule anyway with having so many job titles, but to focus for this is to talk about Fintech Ladies. So Mm -hmm. you established Fintech Ladies to provide a network for women in the industry And this is now spread across Western Europe. Why did you decide to establish a network and why do you think it's been so popular? So my background is in IT and finance and I worked in investment banking in London, actually in a city for for five years before coming to London. Uh, before coming to Berlin, which was 10 years ago. And uh, back then I noticed that there weren't very many female founders. Um, There weren't a lot of women in management and there weren't a lot of women in fintech. Yeah. So in particular, that combination um, was really, really rare. Um, So I decided to do something about it because um, amongst the few female founders that I connected with in Berlin. Um, It was a bit cliche, but a lot of them had um, a venture in either fashion or something to do with uh, food or cooking or children. Yeah, so very cliche. Mm. Um, And there weren't a lot of other female founders who've done something uh, technical. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, when I was looking for professional exchange, then I would mostly talk to men. And and that's why I decided one day when um, I had breakfast with uh, Miriam Wolfert, uh, who founded RatePay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at breakfast, we discussed that there are so few women in fintech. And we decided to host a dinner for all the women we knew Mm -hmm. in fintech. And there were five of us. (laughs) Wow. Five of us. And that was back in uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then we, it was a really, really uh, fun evening and we decided to repeat it. And the task was every, every woman on the table needs to bring at least one other woman. Uh-huh. And, and that's how, how it all started. Yeah. And then the word spread. And then soon we were 20, we were 30 people asked to do it more often. And then there were people, um, ladies from other cities who said, oh, but I'm working in Hamburg usually, or I'm working in Frankfurt. How about we do a dinner? Uh, we do a dinner there, and that's actually how fintech ladies uh, spread from mm. being just a Berlin-based network to other cities, first in Germany, and then as we grew, then there were also ladies from Vienna or from Zurich, and then finally also uh, from from Brussels, from Sweden, yeah, even from from London, who yeah, who wanted to repeat the model because the um, the situation is pretty much the same everywhere. Yeah. So whether finance in a in a city means it's more investment banking, like in London, you know, more banking in general, like in Frankfurt, or whether it's more fintech and more startups like in Berlin, um, you find the general gap pretty much everywhere. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And it's really like the fact that to begin with, you could only think of five. I mean, and then in 2016 as well. I mean, it's not like this was a, a very long time ago. It's relatively recently. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's something that I found in the experience of recording this podcast is that actually 
initially trying to find women to think, okay, who can I approach for this? And then actually it just kind of snowballs because once you speak to someone or I mention it to a colleague or kind of someone else in the industry, suddenly all these other names are coming out of like the, the woodwork, which is is brilliant. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, there's a there's a lot more women out there than I think people realize. And okay. yes, certainly. So, so to move on to the next point really looking at how, having a network like this has impacted on your members and do you have any examples of issues maybe that have been raised or resolved thanks to your network having other women they can speak with yes and no uh, actually you asked uh, why has it been uh, so so popular uh, the network yeah why has it actually spread so Mm. much Um, yeah and why why is there such a demand for women to connect well um first of all when i'm asked the question why is there this imbalance yeah then i always answer well Traditionally, there haven't been a lot of women in finance or banking and not a lot of women in, say, uh, technical studies like computer science, like my background, for example, is computer science. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you merge two disciplines and there aren't a lot of women in either one, then you don't have a lot of women in the intersection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, So I think if we want to overcome this problem, then you have to look, you know, not just uh, at uh, our industry, but also what's happening at the universities, what's happening in the schools. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, but um, uh, to talk about uh, why, why are so many women uh, uh, joining and how does it help? Well, if you're part of a minority, yeah, and doesn't matter what that minority is, whether it's because you're female or because of your, I don't know, your uh, race or um, sexual orientation, doesn't matter. But as a, as part of a minority, uh, you very easily tend to feel like you've chosen the wrong path. Mm. And that's for me, what FinTech Ladies is, is about that for those few women who've chosen this path, yeah, because they like finance or because they they like programming that they get the support they need mm-hmm. yeah and very very often uh ladies walk away and say oh wow i'm so surprised that there are so many other women in fintech and that encourages them yeah it gives them strength and i feel like yeah i am on the wrong uh, i am I'm, I'm not on the wrong track mm-hmm. And, and I have others I can talk to about my career options because that's not a problem if you if you are, if you don't have any role models yeah if you don't see other women who've made it to the top then you you might not feel like you can mm-hmm. you know? yeah. so that's what I see as a very important um, uh, part of the network that there are other women and women higher up that they can talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important as well, being able to create those almost like not even in a formal sense, mentoring opportunities, but just having that ability to talk to someone who's had that experience before. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. And so to kind of look through a little bit more broadly across the, the fintech space, you know, as you say, there's more women working there now and you know, we're looking at a very much uh, an almost startup culture a lot of the time within fintechs. And do you think that women are getting the support they need, such as either with flexible working or maternity cover? And, you know, I'm, I'm almost thinking about I've, I have friends who work in, quote unquote, traditionally male dominated industries. And then I've one example of um, someone she's basically helped to create their maternity leave um, 
kind of rules because there was never a woman before her, you know, and this was like, this was in 2020, which is insane. Um, it was quite an, a very well-established company. I won't say who it is, but, you know, it's quite remarkable. But, you know, so there's, these things are real issues still. So, but do you think with startups and they have the ability to model their operations around the needs, um, yeah, do you think uh, women are, are kind of helping to shape that? Or do you think the lack of women means that we're going to see these kind of issues perpetuated? So, so overall, I would say it has gotten a lot better. Yeah, mm -hmm. but uh, you mentioned a few issues that are um, <laughs> that you that are better taken care of when you work at a big corporate or at a big a big bank. Yeah, mm -hmm. because you're right. Um, very often, startups um, you have a very young staff. Yeah, mm. so so there aren't so when the founders get started, they might not think about maternity leave or parental leave. Let's mm -hmm. call it parental okay. leave. Sure. Yeah, they because it's simply not an issue. Yeah, mm -hmm. and a lot of the staff have kids, and in general, you're right. At startups, um, we're not that good with processes, at least at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think in some respect, actually, the pandemic has also worked in our favor. Yeah, so obviously having to take care of children during the pandemic was quite was quite a task. Mm -hmm. But because of the pandemic, I think across the board, whether it's um, a startup or, or corporates, um, flexible working hours are now installed everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, or a flexible working day. So I think the overall situation has gotten a lot better for women and not just in terms of maternity leave, but also about um, a home office um, and the likes. Mm -hmm. So I think overall, I think we benefited from what we've seen in the last few months and years. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's definitely good to hear. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also now more than ever on the agenda of CEOs mm -hmm. because what really puts me off is when there is a diversity panel yeah, or a diversity working group and everybody who's a member of the working group is female. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm tempted to walk away because it's not, you know, it's not a woman's task to change things for the better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody yeah. needs to be involved. And so what I hear now more and more often is when a male CEO says, I want to, I want to have a 50-50 workforce. Yeah, and I haven't had that when I started, but I think now it's on everyone's agenda. Mm. It's obviously not an easy thing to to achieve. Yeah, because I must say interests are are simply different. Mm. Yeah, women and men are not interested in the same things. Yeah, and that's yeah. something we must acknowledge. And uh, the best example is actually Wikipedia. Mm. Yeah, ninety percent of the articles on Wikipedia are written by men. Yeah. It's open to everybody. Everybody could write articles, but for some reason, we women we're just not interested. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So and there's we we cannot blame anyone for for this fact. It's it's simply a fact. Yeah. In the same way, I think we we must acknowledge that fifty fifty is not always um, possible everywhere. Mm. But I think at least I always uh, tell them well, if even if you just um, achieve maybe 30% or 40%, that's still good. Yeah, yeah. and it's really good that you have it on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what counts. Definitely, and I think as well, there's almost, um, you hear a lot of statements around, oh, we, we want 50-50, and then, you know, you kind of go back a year later and a couple of years later and there's been absolutely no change. And it's like, well, actually, it's it would better to be a realistic, okay, we're going to get 
40-35% and actually yeah. achieve it than have this kind of exactly idealized 50-50 that you're just never even making any effort towards getting. So I think it's actually having that evidence of movement is is more important exactly. than making these statements. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think what's what's important is the the effort that's being made and the positive trend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just to touch on another point, so we, as I briefly mentioned at the beginning, you've got the role now of venture partner at Angel Invest. And, you know, I am going to do an episode which is looking at um, a funding as well later in this series, but just something to touch on briefly while you're here. How have you seen that um, the need for more funding for women? Um, what is your experience of that? How do you, do you see a lot of women coming to you? What are their experiences of not maybe receiving the support they need? Yes, yeah, so in general, just to quote uh, some some uh, numbers, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, widely known that only two percent of um, venture capital uh, flows to uh, female-founded companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the question is, why? Why is that? Is there already not enough capital at earlier stages? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, again, I think there's not a simple answer to it, uh, but I think a lot of, or pretty much all the, the whole VC scene has understood that they need women in their teams because, um, I mean, it's and in some way you, as an investor, you, you, you want the numbers uh, to be right, but besides the analytical part, you also want to gain an intuitive understanding yeah for the problem yeah the business is trying to solve and i think women just very often i think very often they come up with ideas that men don't understand because they don't have that problem mm. but uh, another reason could also be that they think too small yeah i mean <laughs> there, there's so much being talked about how men i mean here adam adam neumann you know big ideas big words mm. but whereas women are more realistic which is something that you know VCs don't want yeah mm. they want big numbers they want big plans there's always world domination that you need to show <laughs> so, yeah. so so I think there are a couple of, of, of reasons um that you could find but um yeah for me and my job at Angel Invest yeah Angel Invest is one of the most active um funds in in europe when it comes to very early uh, funding yeah pre-seed yeah we we also invest when there's just a, a team and a pitch deck yeah not not even a single line of code and uh, i see it as my job to to primarily look at uh, female founders um and I think uh, what also makes a difference is when you when you apply when you pitch and you already know it's an all male panel then I think uh, you're you're much more intimidated mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. as, as a woman so I hope yeah that I can do my part yeah to change the scene for the better so I'm free obviously to um to invest into any kind of team setup mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I make sure that there's at least uh, one one woman in the founding team mm -hmm. for the tickets that I write Welcome to the final chapter of episode one of Disruptive Voices. I'm joined now with Chaitra Chandrasekhar, partner at Oliver Wyman. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So in your role at Oliver Wyman, you have 
touch points with many senior decision makers across industries and across continents as well. What do they consider to be the key areas of focus in terms of greater representation across social groups? Um, thanks. That's a great question. Um, so this is definitely an issue that has been on their radar for many years. Um, and, you know, de depending on the 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 issues facing each firm and the geography that they work in, there's different sectors and different issues that rise to the forefront for a lot of them. I would say that, the, you know, they think about this probably at two levels. At the more tactical level, we see a lot of focus on specific things, such as, you know, looking to strengthen initiatives. So, you know, there's been a lot of focus around thinking through what is the slate of candidates when you're recruiting people. So moving from one to at least two diverse candidates mm -hmm. during the recruiting process. And also thinking about leadership programs, leadership programs that you know, critical career inflection points. So where you're starting to see folks leaving or moving away and where you're losing diverse candidates, that's kind of like really thinking about what to do there. Then this whole issue about flexibility, um, you know, uh, particularly given the uh, the recent, you know, pandemic and the the understanding of how more flexible options are really workable in pretty much any sector, uh, like really thinking about what does that mean for your industry, for your firm, and having leadership really setting those examples, sharing stories, and thinking about flexible work for all, not just specific groups. And then finally, on the tactical side, I would say it's thinking about goals. So setting those clear goals, making public commitments, and holding leadership accountable. And how do you do that? By basically linking it to pay so that it's the accountability really leads to where you want it to go. Um, so that's on the tactical level. If you move to you know, the more cutting edge end of things, uh, companies and firms that are more at the forefront, what you start seeing is a lot more, uh, a bigger focus on diversity and thinking about it more um, at the leadership level. So when we talked a little bit about you know, targets and goals, but not only just setting it for, you know, one or two levels or just at the top, but really making it very granular, looking across the organization and constantly monitoring and thinking about what to do in order to drive that change. So, you know, some of the things that you can think about is really tailored solutions for individuals, because what one works, what works for one person may not work for someone else. And also looking outside the industry. So not only looking at someone who has the exact experience when you're looking to recruit, but really thinking more broadly. And so that way you kind of accelerate the transformation. But, you know, this requires commitment, setting up these individuals for success. It's not, it's not just training and planning, but really broader, you know, the right support networks, having um, the right advocacy, both internally and externally to drive that impact. And the final thing there is also sponsorship. You know, the focus has really moved from mentorship to sponsorship over the years. 
Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing that we see is, you know, de de expanding the definition of diversity and inclusion to really belonging, you know, making it, making that happen, having leaders finding the moments that matter to set the tone, putting in new processes and structures to reinforce the types of behaviors and the inclusive behaviors that make people, make every uh, group feel like they belong. Um, within uh, within the firm and within the industry. And finally, you know, everything comes down to measuring that progress. So finding metrics beyond the very, you know, tactical uh, targets at each level, but really thinking about what are the behaviors that you want to track, the attitudes that you want to drive, and using more real-time data, not just one-off initiatives and having a big focus and then stopping, but really uh, making this uh, a journey uh, to 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 drive the change. Mm, I think there's some such interesting points you've mentioned there around kind of the support that's necessary internally. But one thing that I, I thought was really interesting where you talk around having the need to have diverse candidates as well. And do you think that there's more that could be done in terms of encouraging people or actively finding people to apply for certain roles? Because I feel like you hear a lot like, oh, we would you know, employ someone from a diverse background or we would employ a woman, but we don't have the candidates. But then these people are, are out there, you know, they go to the university, they get the jobs and then somehow they just don't end up applying for the roles. Do you think that companies could do more to kind of actively pursue people to apply for the roles they have? Yeah, 100%. And it's a great point that you keyed in on. I would say that there's a number of things that can be done. So starting from you know, the simple things around the job description itself. And we've seen, you know, some of some shift already on this, like thinking about what are the words that you're using that could, um, you know, drive some people away in terms of the language that you use in descriptions. Then to your point, it's not just about putting it out there and hoping that they'll come, but being very active in pursuing um, candidates through multiple pipelines, not just the typical recruiting pipelines, but other um, other uh, sources such as you know networks conferences where you have these candidates being there. I mean, uh, recently I was looking at you know some conferences are going um, are pushing for really being certified as being more diverse, where they're really focused on bringing more diverse voices to the table in speakers, and we have a lot of organizations sort of helping them with this. So, like really, you know, to your point, a lot of people just say, oh, the can candidates aren't there, but it's you know. They're not there because you're not looking hard enough. You're not attracting them in the right way. And that really need, you know, more needs to be done in order to 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 do that. Mm, that's such an interesting point. And I think it's definitely food for thoughts across a lot of different industry segments as well. Um, just to move on now to our second question I have for you is looking at how the banking fintech industry is addressing issues of women being underrepresented and are there any aspects that they could work harder, harder on improving to actually increase more women in the workforce and also how they, they provide services for women, for example? Yeah, thank you. That's um, a really, really important point. I mean, it is it is definitely an issue. Um, women represent just 14% of um, fintech boards, which is even far below the banking sector, which really is also not a beacon here. Um, uh, where it was around 23% when we looked at it a few years ago. 
And I mean, uh, I think when we were looking at the data in the UK, um, they, we, we only saw we, about 60% of our, the sample that we were looking at had, had even a single woman on their board. So the, the state in fintech is, um, in the financial industry, in the tech industry, and in fintechs in particular, um, there is a lot that can be done. So what are the types of things that um, firms are trying and what, what, where could the focus be? I would say, uh, let's look at it in three, three levels. So first is employees. You know, what do you do in terms of shifting the culture for employees? I mean, here, there's, there's been a lot of progress that's been, uh, that's been made, but it's still a lot to be done. In many jurisdictions, you still don't have the right support for childcare and, um, you know, leave policies. So really thinking through what does that mean? How do we, you know, working in different jurisdictions, do make, make the change happen in order to allow for more equitable access and, um, uh, and really drive that change? And, you know, before COVID, people were like flexible remote working is, you know, not possible in my sector or in, in my group because of X, Y, Z. And now we saw that, you know, in most industries, it is possible to, to think about flexible models, even if they are not 100% flexible, uh, introducing some level of flexibility that um, allows diverse candidates who may have different needs in order to, um, to, to sort of, you know, get the working conditions that would make it uh, suitable for them to really thrive and bring their best selves to work. So that's on the employee side. So really thinking about the cultural aspects, both, you know, formal arrangements as well as what's happening on the informal side. How are leaders, you know, embracing the change? How are leaders really thinking about their staff more holistically and making sure that they're giving the same level of opportunities to uh, men, women, and um, other diverse groups that they might be pushing for. The second would be, as you pointed out, you know, thinking about uh, women as customers, you know, just as we're entering this um, very inflationary environment and uh, with a lot of um, potential, uh, you know, slowing of uh, different sectors and slowing of growth, uh, growth is scarce and, um, you know, women remain a very attractive and untapped group. Um, we did some research for our women in financial services report um, in 2020, where we really sized the opportunity for if financial services firms, um, you know, did it's not even it's not even like a huge lift it's literally saying let's let's make sure that we're giving women the same access for products across banking and insurance and what does that opportunity look like and we sized it at 700 billion globally um so there's a massive revenue opportunity by just serving women as well as men are served today as customers and, you know, this new normal is driving shifts in women's financial needs, and there are a lot of opportunities for new ways to serve. So really thinking critically about are we designing in the right way? Are we including women and other diverse voices during the product development, during the design, during the go to market to really provide the right value exchange with women um, customers is something that um, financial the financial services industry can do a lot on. And, it, you know, is now is a good time to really think about it when there isn't as much growth opportunity as we had in the booming years over the last decade. Mm. 
And then finally, um, I would say like, uh, you know, looking at society more broadly, you know, there has been a shift in terms of what is expected out of companies in terms of their interactions with all stakeholders, not just employees and customers, but, you know, the momentum that we're seeing to address the inequities, um, racial or other uh, inequities in, in broader society. And, you know, there's really unique opportunity to accelerate change across all these dimensions. Mm. No, it's so interesting to hear this. And just now as we move on to the final point and the final question in this episode of the of this podcast series, um, so, you know, we've covered over a lot of different topics so far in this episode, and we've had five fantastic guests as well. And there are maybe are still people out there listening, though, who are wondering about the importance of having more services, more accessible ways into the industry for women and better support for women. And so I just want to put the question to you, if anyone is still listening and is unsure on the importance of supporting greater inclusion for women across all industry segments, are there any hard numbers or business data out there that support this? Um, yeah, so this was, you know, if I look back uh, a decade, the all the focus really was on this, like, is it even important to do this? So I would say a lot of the studies are a little dated now, but you know, the importance of diversity is, um, has been shown to be um, really sizable. But um, it, it, looking at more recent work that we have done, we specifically a few years ago did some research in the private equity and venture capital space, looking at emerging markets, where we looked at the impact the gender balanced leadership teams did to returns. And here we looked at gender balance versus, you know, just, um, uh, a skewed view either way, whether it's, you know, all men or all women. And we define that as leadership teams with at least 30% of, um, you know, um, either men or women. And what we found was really telling at the fund level, teams that are gender balanced had 20% higher net IRR. And, um, you know, this is sizable, a sizable uh, difference. So it just showed that decision making was much better when you had more balanced teams uh, driving and making those decisions. We also saw that female partners invested in almost twice or 2x more female entrepreneurs than male partners did. So you also saw them encouraging and seeing the the, the value in um, uh, the, you know, in the entrepreneurs that they were investing in. And then when you went to the portfolio company level, we saw that gender balanced teams had higher valuation. So we saw increases of 64% for gender balanced teams um, in leadership in the portfolio companies versus 55%. So, you know, this is um, specific to one industry, but these types of, and it, it is, it is kind of, important to look across all of them but these are the types of things that we do see so you know bringing more diverse voices to the table and bringing more diverse voices in the room really does drive tangible increases in um in in impact and in business performance thank you for listening to disruptive voices a monthly podcast from the banker you can listen at thebanker.com acast spotify apple or wherever you get your podcasts